Hello everybody, I'm here with Ryan Leckie from the TLSS Foundation, who's just fresh off a red-eye flight from Bangkok. Welcome back to Tokyo, Ryan. Hi, good morning, thank you very much. It's nice to speak with you all today. Let's start with Classic with your background. You have a very heavy security background. You studied at MIT and you found that too boring and you quit and created your first company at the time. Uh, yes, uh, I've been interested in computer security and cryptography and everything else for a very long time. Since I was about 10 or 11 years old, I discovered some mailing list forums and some books about how individuals can use technology to uh, protect their own rights uh, against larger groups of people. Um, historically, this has happened with certain technologies. Certain technologies are really good for um, individual rights versus a larger group. Certain technologies are very good for larger groups versus individuals. And cryptography is unique because it's one of the things that's actually really good for both. And found the CypherCon's mailing list back in the 1990s where almost all the things that are happening today in terms of electronic uh, payment systems, digital privacy, remailers, all this other stuff were discussed and prototyped, but it was unfortunately probably too early for a lot of the technology to be commercially or otherwise widely deployed. Just getting a basic piece of software to run on your computer was a huge challenge. We didn't know if you we were supposed to write software for DOS or Windows or Mac, and you didn't have any sort of cross-platform network. And the only people really using this technology at the time were other tech people that were also building the same technology. So it was very hard to find real use cases because I think the secret is most tech people have fairly boring personal lives and other activities aside from the tech. So there's not as much need for them to have these technologies. It's only really once the technology is easier and easier to use and available to a larger pool of people that people who have genuine problems, so people working in human rights work, people that are living in countries that have uh, challenges with the payment systems, everything else, are going to be able to use the technology. If it's only available to people that are living in very rich countries that are working in technology, there's not as much use case for it. So when, in your mind, did that change when like, the, the real application use cases came up? Yeah, I think throughout the 1990s we were just building the underlying infrastructure for everything. The dot-com boom in the US and more importantly the sort of the overhang after the dot-com boom where all of these resources were available, all these people knew about their technology right. but hadn't, there was no, like it had all been written off so it was very cheap to build stuff. I'd say probably 2000 to 2004, 2005 was probably the most interesting time for all this technology because you had all the components that were there, the technology was finally good enough to build things, and you look at companies, this is when Google, when the early parts of a lot of social networking, everything else were actually being built. And uh, some of the first, I'd say PayPal was probably the first widely successful non-bank financial payment system, and it was similarly built out in that, that time period. So. Mm. And so then around 2010, you created the company that you ultimately sold to Cloudflare? Uh, yes, I. Uh, so one of the things that happened during the 1990s and early 2000s is a lot of people got a little bit disillusioned with how long all this stuff was taking, and I spent 2003 to 2010 working as a defense contractor in Iraq and Afghanistan, doing satellite communications, hospital networking. Uh, uh, the main system I worked on was a way that if somebody was injured, they could have an x-ray taken at one base and have the x-ray transferred uh, by a satellite to wherever they're going next mm -hmm. uh, so that the doctors were ready for treating people and things like that. So really I was working on that, but I was following all of the, the interesting technological developments that were happening. And in 2011, I started a company with a couple of my friends from the Bay Area that I'd known for 15 years. Uh, basically making it possible to do cloud computing in a way that you could prove to the end users of the cloud computing that the software was uh, 
was, was doing what they wanted it to do. So it was a sort of a secure way of doing cloud computing. I ran that company from 2011 to 2014. Then I sold it to Cloudflare, a large DDoS mitigation company that went public a couple of years ago, or early, like, actually last year. And uh, so that was sort of my, my um, Silicon Valley startup experience. Uh, I then, uh, while I was at Cloudflare, I was looking at a lot of interesting stuff. I was learning a lot about the um, network protection, DDoS mitigation type stuff and also following crypto again, because all the exciting stuff had been happening since uh, 2010 with Bitcoin and all the other crypto protocols. So I assume that you took a broad view at what is going on in the cryptocurrency space, and did you select Tezos, or did Tezos select you? Uh, yeah, so I was on the cryptography mailing list run by Perry Metzger, and that was where Bitcoin was announced. So I'd been involved in some crypto stuff. I was much more interested in how to use uh, computer security technology to help crypto projects in general, not necessarily the use case for crypto projects themselves. And I was friends with uh, Arthur Brightman, founder, one of the co-founders of Tezos, as well as some other people in the in the Tezos ecosystem. Uh, I originally got involved because I was helping out with the fundraiser just around DDoS mitigation and security of the mm. fundraiser itself, uh, which was sort of interesting. I was with Arthur and Kathleen during the the fundraiser just to make sure nothing would happen in terms of uh, people attacking the fundraiser uh, technology and that went pretty well and then, did people attack the, uh, the were, technology? Uh, so during the fundraiser we saw a couple things that were either uh, misconfigured remote systems or potentially network attacks it was fairly like the, the system was actually built very well it was designed to be uh, resistant against a lot of attacks and it was built on top of AWS which itself protects it from a lot of things because it can scale and it was built very well so very small attacks we wouldn't even notice mm. the only we, we noticed a couple things that were large resource consumption but we don't know definitively that there were attacks cool. All right, so it came all through personal relationships, basically. Uh, personal relationships, yeah. and, and we've been, yeah. like, these are all people that have been doing this stuff for 15, 20 years. Sure, right. And uh, it's, I, I knew Arthur because he actually was friends with uh, my friend Samir, who had also worked on uh, cryptography for a long time. He was the first person to sell SSL commercially in the United States. He got the second license, and uh, it's all sorts of people that have been involved in this stuff for a very long time. Right. So, if, if you look at 2019 and just at the, the price of cryptocurrency, Tezos clearly came out as one of the winners. So, the market seems to say you're doing something right. What is it that you're doing right? Yeah, the, I don't really track the price itself as a metric for okay, any of good. these things. Um, I mean, I think you, could, you can track market caps at a very high level just to see what the interest is in various projects. Mm -hmm. But we don't really know what the correct metric is to track for the current for projects to know how successful they are. I think meaningful use is the the standard that everybody should be going for. It doesn't do any good if there's a huge treasury held by somebody and one token is traded back and forth once a year. Um, if there's a, a system that a lot of people are actually using for significant applications and applications that couldn't happen without that cryptocurrency, that's probably the, the greatest way to value uh, the system. And by that metric, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Tezos have all been very successful. Um, there's stuff like Bitcoin, obviously, was the first cryptocurrency that was in one wide scale with this kind of uh, use. And 
things that we didn't think were possible to do or suddenly possible to do. Uh, Ethereum was the first widespread smart contract platform and we've seen smart contracts work successfully and Tezos is a system designed from the ground up for security and community governance and we've seen those things work exceptionally well yeah. in practice. And I think everybody, including Charles Hoskinson, who was here in Tokyo last year twice as well, um, kind of highlight always Tezos governance as the, the key example of uh, the key example to follow, right? It still still feels uh, we, we don't know everything about governance. We don't know if it ultimately works, but the, the best approach to date and, and also flexible approach seems to come from Tezos. Yeah, I think the, the Tezos governance uh, system as well as uh, things we haven't seen widely used yet or used at all really yet, the invoice-based uh, inflation funding of new uh, extensions to the system, I think those are going to be things that make Tezos successful over the next 20, 30 years. Uh, the, uh, one of the big challenges with cryptocurrency projects is you end up either with something like a fundraiser or an ICO raising a bunch of money in the beginning, or you have something where it's very hard to incentivize developers that come into the system a year or two later after this, this event to join the system and participate and build things. You then end up with people building uh, lots of new um, uh, forked protocols or anything else, and that makes it um, you, you lose a lot of the network effects of the, of the system. So I think that the Tezos model of being able to make uh, proposals to the community and get inflation-based funding for these projects is the, is the very good model for doing this thing. Uh, we haven't necessarily seen every possible um, way this works in practice. There's lots of stuff we talk about. Maybe someday there'll be venture capital funds that, that uh, will fund a project based on the odds that their invoice will be paid for a project, so they'll be able to get their funding up front and the investors will be able to recoup that after the fact. Uh, it might be something where community groups uh, establish and do things. So it's very early on in how this works, but I think it is good foundation for it. So and that is the, the role of the Tezos Foundation to kind of identify these projects and then ultimately fund this? Uh, so for right now, uh, the role of the Tezos Foundation is to advance the Tezos ecosystem and that's its statutory purpose. The main areas that we're acting are making sure the core dev teams, so Nomadic Labs, Cryptium, and Dilemda and Kyoto, are funded for their projects. And in some cases, we're actually pushing them to hire more people, expand faster, things like that. We're actively trying to find more teams to build uh, sort of the supporting software around the core protocol, so the shell and, and other things. We'd love to fund more projects like that. Uh, we also do grants, so people inbound uh, requests for funding from various groups, everything from making t-shirts to running community events to building new storage engines to uh, you know, reference libraries of smart contracts, new programming languages. So we, through grants, fund a lot of this development. But I think in the, the very long term, a lot of that stuff is going to be funded by activities on the network itself, so either invoices or uh, fees charged to users. Uh, the role of the Tezos Foundation is definitely very front-loaded in terms of doing a lot of work up front to get all the foundations in place, but you don't need to have uh, that level of support uh, when a system is, is fully mature and, and widely used. Right. I think it was, came about four hours ago, so I, I saw this on the way when I, when I, when I came here, were 21 grants given and they were focused on smart contracts, smart contract tools, education and, and marketing. So it was a wide, wide range. And as you said, like many, it was language support on like Go and, and JavaScript libraries, etc. I think. So okay. it seems like smart contract is the, the focus area in, in this round of, 
um, kind of RFP grants. Yeah, definitely. The last um, batch of submissions, I think we had something like 80 or 100 mm -hmm. submissions, which sort of overwhelmed our process to some extent. Uh, we had to break it up into batches and and release the, the just doing the contracts and all the, the key performance indicators and everything else for these projects, which we now do upfront when we're giving a grant so people know what they're going to be uh, judged on in terms of mm. continuing the grant. Uh, doing all the paperwork for that has taken about a month of, of solid well. work, including the holiday season. <laughs> so uh, that's a major area. Uh, we're going to do a new RFP for a broader base set of um, proposals, I believe, either this week or next week. Um, we have a few wish list items internally for what goes into that, but I don't know that it's been finalized yeah. yet. So can we go through this in a little bit more detail, what this invoice-based process looks like? Sure. Uh, so when someone submits a protocol uh, upgrade uh, request that the community votes on and ultimately rejects or approves, uh, part of that proposal is an amount called an invoice for a number of tokens that will be uh, minted freshly and distributed to the author of the proposal if the proposal is accepted. Uh, we've done that on the previous uh, um, to Athens, Babylon, and now in Carthage, but they're for fairly nominal amounts. I think it was something like 100 XTZ for paying for beer for nomadic labs or something like that, just to test that it works. We haven't done anything um, in terms of a, a meaningful um, invoice amount yet. Uh, part of that is because the groups that have done the core protocol um, proposals are actually funded already by Tezos Foundation, so Nomadic Labs and Cryptium already received grants, so there's a question of perhaps double funding them for things, and there's no need to do that. Uh, what might make sense is that we figure out a way to uh, do some cost sharing on future proposals, so maybe if it's a, a team that is already funded, they get additional funding but not the full amount of funding through an invoice, yeah. or perhaps the Tezos Foundation um, pays an additional amount of the invoice or something like that. Um, we're looking at a lot of options there. I mean, the reality is Tesla's Foundation has a large amount of assets. We have, I think, 550 or $600 million in assets. So it's not as necessary to fund things by the invoice mechanism so far. But the advantage of using the invoice mechanism is it makes it much more democratic what the, the different teams are doing. And it's sort of a concern because nobody at the dev teams is getting rich on their work. There's no... Um, they're basically running as public service. They're, they're paid a reasonable salary to work on things. They have reasonable facilities, but they're not extravagantly. And there's, mm -hmm. no, there's no equity upside for them if, in the same way that if they were building a, a startup and their, their product was accepted by the market and they're very successful, they'd have huge enterprise value and they would get rich off of that and everything else. We're still in the early experimentation stage there. At some point, it makes sense that if you come up with a great proposal for the Tezos network, and it's implemented and widely deployed, you should get a, a meaningful amount of money over and above your development expenses. But we don't know that the, um, what exactly what mechanism is the right way to do it. Great, thank you. Um, what, what's Arthur's role in the overall ecosystem at this point? Uh, Arthur's role is sort of, I mean, he's obviously one of the co-founders and very significant from a technology, uh, product, everything else perspective. Uh, he's an advisor to the Tezos Foundation, but he has no operational role within the Tezos Foundation. Tezos Foundation is really just a grant-making and, and funding vehicle. Uh, the, uh, the areas where he has uh, the greatest impact are um, sort of technology decisions as sort of advice and consultation for the entire ecosystem, as well as uh, product decisions, so prioritizing how certain things work. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a very good sign of maturity for the Tezos project that if 
there, there's a question about something like uh, um, the P2P network layer and there's a bug in it or something. Arthur is not the first call and he's also not necessarily the person who knows the most about the system. The, the developers who have built the thing actually know more than Arthur does about almost every individual piece of system. He does have a very good knowledge of how everything fits together and, and a long-term product vision, but it's more forward-looking and not so much the day-to-day -day operational issues or anything. So he's a more of an evangelist advocate at, at this point? Uh, yes. Uh, he's been working on this for a very long time with the other people, so yeah. it's, uh, uh, he's, he's more the yeah, sort of setting the direction of the overall uh, the, the product and just making it and also an important role of if something is done well or not he tell, tells people so i mean if somebody did a conference at, at this point would it be better to invite invite arthur or some of the leads of the development teams to speak about the state and the, the future roadmap yeah i think for conferences people always want to hear from the founder of a project no matter no matter what uh, and Arthur is, is a great speaker and everything else. For a technical conference, he's definitely the, the person to talk to. I think if I were running a conference and I was focused on a specific application of Tezos, uh, there's a bunch of other people that would actually be even better to talk with. Mm -hmm. I would say if it's somebody doing a security token project, one of the people like Elevator Returns who I was visiting in, in Thailand uh, over the last week, or uh, Fundament in Germany, or one of these other projects is actually a user of the system, would be a much more interesting talk than somebody who's a technology expert for one of the, the component pieces of the, of the ecosystem. Uh, I think the um, there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that people can talk about in the mm -hmm. Tesla's ecosystem. Um, there's the STO projects that are going on, yeah. there's payments, there's the governance system, all sorts of stuff like that. And there's actually a pretty large pool of people that have their individual areas of of uh, focus and expertise. I mean, that really moves us towards more decentralization, right, in terms of how, how the whole system works, and that's that's ultimately the goal of this whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> when you're building an ecosystem, you definitely want to have decentralization yeah. and, a, and a lot of people that are experts in their individual areas. Okay. So you mentioned Thailand, you just came came from Bangkok. What do you what do you see in Asia overall, and, and specifically kind of into the, in, in the Thai market and compared to Japan? Sure. Uh, yeah, I was with Elevated Returns in Thailand. They're probably going to be the first uh, STO project that launches. We have, I think, three of three or four of them that are that are sort of racing to get launched first in Q1, and they recently got their regulatory approval for the exchange. They have to get some other regulatory things done, but it's really the last last steps of exactly how the final demo works for the the regulators to look at things, how the uh, exact uh, audit standards for everything are done, things like that. So they're, they're very close to launching and they're going to be a, a major real estate exchange for the Asian market. Not, there's obviously a large focus on Thailand for them, but they're open to assets from other places. Mm. Uh, Thailand is a very interesting market because the Thai SEC, their regulator there, is very, um, very technically competent and a lot of that is because there are a couple of individuals that have helped them write the right laws. Uh, people from Thailand that are experts in both securities and in technology, and they have a vision that's actually more, um, I would say, more expansive or uh, more exciting than things that even people within the technology industry have. They want to move as much of the market into tokenized technology as possible over the next uh, five or ten years. And uh, they're really easy to work with. They have a, they have very technically high requirements for things, but in terms of process, they have a fairly straightforward process. And the most important thing is 
they understand that there there might be risk in doing some sort of new technology, but there's also huge benefit, and they're willing to uh, accept some uh, potential um, difficulty or whatever else if it, there's a, a commensurate reward for for doing so. That it'll make their efficient their economy much more efficient. It'll make it easier for Thai companies to raise money. It'll make uh, business much better. Uh, a lot of regulators around the world are focused only on the downside, which mm -hmm. is sort of it's their job is to prevent bad things from happening. But they it's it's difficult for them structurally to be concerned about making sure positive things happen as well. So here's really the opportunity for a country that maybe hasn't developed a full financial system yet to like kind of leapfrog and, and kind of it's like not going to landline and go to mobile phones directly. Here you move into um, blockchain technology, crypto right away and, and tokenizing everything. Yeah, exactly. We've seen the, the leapfrogging uh, happen with the telcos. I think uh, Thailand had a fairly developed market. It just wasn't a very, it was a very localized market. Mm -hmm. They don't have as much access to the external markets uh, compared to a country like Singapore or Japan. And uh, it's nice. Their economy is huge. It's uh, much bigger than I thought. There's a lot of manufacturing. There's a lot of um, services that are happening and it's growing very fast. So yeah, it's definitely a, a, a good thing. They're also a sufficiently developed uh, market that they you can trust them as an external investor. You can know that uh, there's a rule of law and uh, they're making good technology choices. It was a very, very small country that was making this as their, their first system that didn't have much of a financial system at all. Then you'd have a lot more uncertainty there. Yeah. They have a developed legal system and everything else. So it's 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 really the ideal size for a for a test. It'd be very difficult for a country like uh, the U.S. or Japan or or EU or something like that to adopt something quickly. Um, it's much easier for a country in that size, but they're also big enough that it's worth investing in their in their market mm -hmm. as an external party. In addition to STOs, is something going on in the payment space for you there as well? Uh, we are looking at both gaming and payments in. Uh, around the world in general, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a couple opportunities in Thailand that are very interesting. Um, if you just look around, you see a lot of people that are using their phones to do everything in their lives. So if there's a way to do a payment application that works on mobile phones, that works with some combination of existing infrastructure and uh, both physical infrastructure, payments infrastructure, and crypto infrastructure, and bridges the gap between those things, it would be great. I think it's uh, there's some markets where credit cards are incredibly well deployed and it's very difficult to go after the retail payments model there. Uh, there's a lot of other markets where either credit cards are not as widely used or where there's payments other than direct uh, consumer to large business payments where it makes a lot of sense. And those are the areas where I think crypto payments are going to make mm. uh, are going to be most appealing. In terms of gaming, if we take like the Ethereum terminology, the, the the killer app seems to be non-fungible token, mm -hmm. collectibles, or like the CryptoKitty thing, uh, or getting tools in the games, whether it's a sword you can slay the dragon with and make them transferable. Is that similar for you, or is there the other use cases that kind of popping up now? Yeah, in terms of gaming, I think uh, non-fungible tokens are definitely a major area, being able to register achievements and goods and other things within the ecosystem. Uh, there's also... Uh, some interest in putting more game logic in into smart contracts for fairness and things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, I'm not really a gaming expert, so that's one area where we, we have one board member who's from a, a gaming background and is very familiar there. Uh, I'm much more focused on the STOs and to some extent payments, but it's definitely an area where um, 
there's a lot of interest in the overall ecosystem. And it's probably an area where Tezos has not been, uh, we, we really have not focused as much on gaming uh, to date. I mean, Kathleen obviously has her, uh, has Coast, the, the gaming project she's working on. And there's a couple other projects, but it hasn't been the, the number one area mm -hmm. of development. But there's a big opportunity. So is STO also what brings you to Japan again? Uh, what brings me to Japan is actually I have a stopover on my flight back to the US. <laughs> but, uh, Very uh, practical. Yeah, but but uh, I do I do come here. Uh, STOs, I mean, the Japanese market is very, very interesting. It is, uh, the, the regulations here are very um, comprehensive and uh, they're very strict and formal, but they are also, I would say, fair and you can't, they're, they're deterministic. Unlike some other places, it's very straightforward to at least understand where you are in the, in the regulatory ecosystem here and you can uh, figure out how to comply with them. And it may take time. It, it's, it's probably going to take us uh, a year or two to have a, um, a lot of things happen in the Japanese ecosystem mm -hmm. with Tezos, but uh, the ultimate goal is worth it. It's a very large market, very well developed, and a lot of people that are very interested in crypto as well as um, investment assets and everything else. And there's major banks here, there's major issuers. So we've definitely investigated STO projects here. There's a few industry associations that are doing a lot of good work here. Um, we're also interested in just the general crypto ecosystem here and participating in that. Cool. Um, my favorite topic we talked about last time when, when, when we met was uh, Brazil. And so you're, you're doing lots in, in Brazil as well, or maybe South America overall. Um, what's the landscape looking like there? Yeah, our focus in Latin America and South America is definitely on Brazil right now. Uh, partially it was just because the BTG Pactual project, which is also launching in Q1, is based there and they have a very strong presence in Brazil. They also have a presence in the rest of Latin America. So um, our model has always been we find one successful project that we just will start working on and then expand from there rather than trying to go into a market uh, completely new with no no reference projects or anything else. Uh, that is a very, very exciting market. We have a very, very strong and motivated local team there who are, have been part of the Tezos community for uh, since the, the fundraiser. So it's, it's a very good market for us. It's also a market where they don't have the most efficient um, financial system. They have a high inflation rate. They have a long history of uh, not having uh, a lot of external interest in investing in their country and things like that. And they've had the political changes, however people feel about that, but it, in the last couple of years it definitely has gone more pro-business in terms of regulations. Mm -hmm. so there's an opportunity for new systems just whenever there's a change to, to take hold. And uh, a lot of the, the major banks, other participants there, are very excited about working on, on stuff. We have a lot of interesting discussions there about asset classes that are different than normal investment classes, things that you can all So there's um, there's things that you can do uh, with crypto, but they're not as good as the traditional system. There's, thing, there's things that you can't do at all with crypto um, right now. There's things that you can do with crypto, but they're not as good as the traditional way. There's things we could do it either way. There's some things where crypto is obviously better, and there's some things that you can only do with crypto. And there's some things that in Brazil are in the last categories of 
they're either very difficult to do in the traditional system or very inefficient, and they're only possible to do with crypto, or uh, there are things where the crypto advantages are huge. Uh, real estate in general is one of those things where I think there's a big enough advantage to doing it in crypto versus non-crypto systems globally that uh, it's a big opportunity, but there's also some other asset classes that are specific to Brazil. Cool. Very good. Um, so maybe to round it out, Rob's is starting a new decade now. Um, what is your expectation for blockchain overall crypto um, in terms of enterprise adoption, institutional investors getting engaged? It's like the, the things we always say, like the next year is a year where kind of the breakthrough comes. And ultimately, it doesn't matter whether it will be 2019, 20 or so, it will come at, at some point. But how do you see kind of the next five years developed, for example? Yeah, I think over the next five to ten years, we're going to see certain. We're going to see a lot of experiments happen, and they're going to be larger and larger experiments, proof of concept pilots, and we're probably going to see a couple of markets come into existence that are crypto only for certain kinds of financial assets, and then other assets where uh, doing it in in crypto versus some sort of other system is uh, generally it's going to shift from being sort of an early adopter thing for crypto to by the end of the decade, it's going to be the default. And you're, there are going to be people who still don't use crypto for that thing, but they're going to be looked at as, as sort of like antiquated. Mm. Just like having a fax machine. And there's still people are using fax machines today. Especially in Japan. Japan is the, <laughs> yeah. but, but there, and there's certain countries like Switzerland where um, electronic signatures are not yet widely legally recognized. Mm. So you still have wet ink signatures for a lot of things. But the, um, the majority of, of places, it's either going to be country-based or, or market-based. Um, maybe the real estate market is going to be one of those things, but the real estate market is huge and very different. There's not one real estate market, every local place, it's a highly local market as well. But there's going to be some other asset classes that are going to move primarily to, to crypto over the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of infrastructure, uh, I certainly hope that it gets easier to use and safer to use. Um, even today, with the, the absolute best systems out there, if you took a, a user who was familiar with a web browser and some basic stuff and had them purchase crypto online and do some basic transactions, they're going to make some serious mistakes. We've seen some uh, journalists that were recently, or uh, <laughs> people recently, um, not knowing how to back up their seed phrases and causing themselves some financial loss. Right. So it's uh, the default way of doing things needs to be a safe way of doing things. and. I don't think we're yet at the point where the easiest way to do something is a safe way to do things in the crypto mm -hmm. space. So that's going to be a big challenge. It's going to require, and the problem is a lot of the crypto people are very that are in the, in the ecosystem today are still very strong technically, but they're not product focused. So I think we're going to need to see something like the Apple of cryptocurrency happen over the next few years to really make that possible. The user experience, customer yeah. experience isn't that, that great yet. But then at, at the same time, um, like Coinbase, for example, started offering Tezos baking services. And so that is an easy way, but it's also a centralized way of, of doing yeah. it. Yeah, there's a, there's a good argument that centralized systems are always going to be easier to do. Mm -hmm. to, they're certainly going to be easier to implement and they may have a better user experience for many users much of the time. But I think if you look at the sort of the tail risk of if you're using one of the centralized systems and something goes wrong, I mean, Coinbase probably has very good support. But I know when, whenever anything happens with Google and your Google account gets locked, and if you ever fall out of their 99th percentile of normal operations, 
trying to like the only way I've ever seen people get that stuff fixed is if they know somebody who works for Google and then escalate it through that. So it's uh, I think those centralized systems you end up they're they're good for the majority of users most of the time and sometimes they go very wrong. Right. So it would be ideal if there were maybe a more more technology focus on making great decentralized systems that are easy to use and that are good for the for almost every user. Got it. Um, what's the question that I should have asked but didn't? Oh, it's a very good meta question. Uh, I don't know. I think. I think about that. Uh, I mean, I think overall Asia, like the different countries in Asia, we we recently have been visiting a bunch of, of countries here. Uh, I would say Japan is the the obvious big uh, country that's going to have um, crypto is going to be adopted widely at some point, but it might take a couple extra years. It's going to have very um, well-defined regulation, but it's going to be fairly, fairly comprehensive regulation. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for countries. I know Singapore is pushing crypto very hard. They they have a good um, regulatory apparatus, and they're very pro-business. Like their their government in Singapore. I mean, I both the, both a criticism and a compliment to Singapore is that they run their government like a business, and they're focused on making Singapore successful mm -hmm. for all Singaporeans, but for uh, economic success, and they make their regulations work in that regard. Um, and I think Singapore is definitely going to be one of the key key parties, but it's entirely possible that there's going to be other places in Asia. I mean, Malaysia has some opportunities, Indonesia, all sorts of places. So if one of those countries that does, isn't a world leader in finance today decides to build something, maybe they won't be the first to do the crypto system, but they might be one of the bigger ones. Thank you very much, Ryan. Really appreciate this uh, right after your red, red eye flight and uh, enjoy your stop over in, in Japan. Yes, a meetup tonight. Yes. Probably won't get the, the podcast out in, out in time, but uh, success for that. And thanks very much for your time. Great. Thank you very much. Super. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah.